Every ministry too. I think that what's going on there is just so exciting. So um, we'll be coming here. We're not leaving anywhere for a good long time. But I just wanted to say those words and how much uh, Joe has meant to me here in my uh, last days in Florida. Joe. Um, many people won't really appreciate, besides me, because of the many conversations we had, how, how important it was for me to have Daryl uh, with me as we started Grace Life. <clears throat> Just to have him as a, uh, uh, a theological security blanket with his wisdom and also a lot of his experience in ministry. Uh, couldn't have done it without him. And I uh, understand Daryl has had decades of ministry in this town. Decades. I mean, a long time, affecting a lot of people. Uh, several churches, thousands of people have been blessed by his insight. Uh, he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever worked with, and I'm going to miss him. But, but now the good thing is I can send him my sermons each week and not have to pay him to look at them. So that's the good part. I'll save, <laughs> I'll save some money. My name is Joe Davis. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing our series. We just started <clears throat> last week on 2 Corinthians, and I love this book. Uh, and remember what 2 Corinthians is, just to give you a quick reminder. 2 Corinthians was Paul's follow-up letter before or after his butt-kicking letter of 1 Corinthians, where he laid out a bunch of stuff they were doing wrong. They've responded, they've repented, and now he's writing a new letter encouraging them for that. But he's also writing this letter for two reasons, if you'll remember. Because people are attacking his authority as an apostle, and people are attacking the veracity of the gospel. So, but today I want to talk about, uh, I guess, 2 Corinthians 1, 12 to, 1, 12 to chapter 2, verse 4, and the title of this is Joy is Greater Than Church Business. Now, I've preached this sermon before. Some of you have heard it before, but I changed a couple of words so you can pretend like it's brand new, if you remember it. But it's a very important sermon to communicate again. Number one, it's the next one in this series on 2 Corinthians, but it contains a lot of core principles as to what grace life is founded upon. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is joy. There's a lot of talk about joy in churches today. But be honest with me, and don't raise your hand, but just think, do you really even know what it is? I mean, if I really press you, define joy. Could you, could you do it? Can you really define it? My bet is most Christians cannot define joy. They just know this. It's something they're supposed to have when God saves them. But really, you don't really... I, I can tell you for a long time as a pastor... I would say joy, and I would sing joy to the world at Christmas. I didn't really, what does joy mean? Uh, a big smile? Uh, I don't know. What does it mean? Do, do you ever say you have joy, but really even not sure you know what it looks like? I mean, is joy emotional? Is it mental? Is joy some sort of physical nirvana? I mean, for real, guys, what is joy? So today I have two goals for you. The first goal is that I want to help you define what joy is. I want to give you a working, tangible definition. So when you leave today, you can say, oh, this is joy, and I recognize I have it today, or I don't have it today. Or if you want to judge someone else, you say, you don't have joy. I'm just joking. Don't do that. Oh, don't but my, my heart is that after today, you can stop guessing whether or not you know what joy is or if you have it. The second goal is I want us to change the way we look at our church business. And this is very important. So what we start with 
is Paul's commitment to transparency. And what he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, is he explains what his desire was. And I'm just going to read the passage to you. I split the passage up in about three things. We're going to read the first section. I'm going to just kind of quickly explain the second section for the sake of time. And then the third section we'll read again. But here's the first one. <clears throat> because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. In other words, I really wanted to come see you again because I thought it was really important to remind you what you felt like the first time you met Jesus. I really wanted to come see you. I wanted so badly to go where you are because it was so important to me. I wanted to see you face to face and I wanted to make sure you have what I think you need. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. In other words, I wanted to stop by there on the way to Macedonia and then coming back through, I was going to stop again and have you send me on to Judea. So he wanted to hit them twice. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and then all of a sudden no, no at the same time? So that's what he says. He says, I'm explaining to you, I was struggling. And he starts off in the next part we're going to look at uh, as a preface explaining what he's about to do and why he chose not to come back to deliver the message in person. And that's in uh, verses 15 through uh, 17. So he says, because of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second spirit of grace. I wanted to visit you. And then, you know, and then on verse 18, he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, I wasn't wavering. I know you thought I wanted to come and I wanted, you to know, it. it wasn't because I couldn't make up my mind. For the son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but to him it was always yes. For you all the promises of God find the, uh, for all the promises of God find there uh, in him. That is why it's through him that we utter amen to the glory of God. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has put a seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He's explaining why he took his change of plans so seriously. It wasn't easy for me to make this decision because we understand how important Christ is and how in him we find all our blessing and all our encouragement and all our joy. Christ is the center. And this is why it was so hard for me to make the decision not to come. And look what he says in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Let that sentence sink in. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. 2 Corinthians 2, 1-4, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Do you hear this? It was to spare you that I didn't come, because if I came again, it would be painful. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the ones whom I have pained? And if I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of my heart. In other words, when I wrote to you in 1 Corinthians, there was a lot of affliction in my heart. There was anguish. There was frustration. And with many tears. 
not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul's explaining to them, look, I so much want to be there with you. There's a lot of reasons why. And the gospel is the main reason, because remember, one of the goals of this book was to make sure they understood that A, he was an apostle, and B, the gospel is important. He says, but it's so important that I want to make sure that your joy remains full. I decided the best thing I could do was write a letter instead. So let's look at the history of the passage. Like what we do here, we like to break it down. The history is what about man, what did he do, and why, and how did he do it? Paul puts the Corinthians first. First of all, he wanted to desperately visit them again. It was, it was a burning desire inside of him. He wanted to be there. He wanted without, without question, not only did he want to be there, he wanted to go twice. Because he knew there were people that were attacking his credibility. Don't listen to Paul. Where is he right now? He's not here right now. He's not an apostle. He doesn't care about you. People were attacking his credibility. He doesn't really have the authority to tell you what's true. We do. We're here. And Paul so wanted to come and set them straight. They're attacking his message. And that gospel he preaches, it's not real. You need Judaism alongside of it. Or you need this pagan religion alongside of it. So those are the two things he's dealing with. They're attacking his credibility. They're attacking his message. They are attacking their faith. They're saying to the Corinthians, you need to be Jewish, actually, to be saved. Or you need to worship in this pagan temple with us if you really want to fit in. So these people are attacking his credibility. They're attacking his message. They're attacking the actual faith of the Corinthians. And Paul put his church plans on the back burner. He knew that the commotion, based on what had happened before, when he went there the first time, he was run out of the city. They wanted to kill him. I mean, it was a very violent, angry situation. There were demonstrations against Paul. There was mobs against Paul. They did not want him there. And based on what happened before, he knew very well if he came again, his presence would be detrimental and very distracting for the Corinthians. So what he did was he put their joy before his desires. He wanted to be with them and defend himself and defend the gospel. And that was tough. Think about it. Man, I've got to go and confront these morons face to face. But I'm not going to do it because the fact that I'm so angry and the fact that they hate me so much is going to cause a huge distraction in the whole city. And everybody's going to know it's the Christian's fault and they are going to get persecuted for it. And I don't want that to happen. He put their joy before his desires. He put their joy before his ministry plans. And he says, I determined that instead of visiting you, which I really wanted to do, I don't want you to think that I didn't want to come. I did, and it was very important for me to come. But I decided it's better off that I just write a letter. So that's what happens historically. You've got a good understanding of this, right? Let's look at the theology of this passage. What about God? What does he do, and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about the wisdom from God that Paul got. This... This satisfaction with God's presence, not only in our own lives, but just as much in the lives of others, is the wisdom that Paul had. And so here's what God gave Paul. First of all, there was wisdom that a letter was the best recourse. It was best for him. It was best for them. And get this, guys, this is what's amazing. For thousands of years, it's been best for us. Today. 
I mean, this was supernatural intervention into Paul's good plans. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a missionary wanting to go and visit the church he planted, especially when people are attacking the very message that he preached to them. It's not an immoral desire for Paul to do that. But yet God intervenes and gives Paul the wisdom to see it's more important that you write a letter. And can you imagine, had we not had that letter for 2,000 years? I mean, this is an example of all things working together for good to those who are the called, isn't it not? I mean, we benefit greatly from that. And there's another bit of wisdom that God gave Paul. It was the ability to put them first over even his good desires to be with them and take the fight directly to his attackers. And the next thing he does, he gives Paul insight to see the joy of ministry and what it was really founded in. The joy that he wanted them to have was based upon their welfare, not his desires. It was based on their joy and not his own agenda. Matter of fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 2 and 3, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the ones whom I have pained? This is how important you are to me, Corinthians. I'm not going to go there because I know if I do, I'm going to cause you pain. And if you are suffering, that's going to affect me immensely to know that I caused that. And I wrote as I did in that letter so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Paul says, my joy is based upon the fact that you have joy. My joy is not based upon whether or not I scratch my itch to yell and scream at my attackers. My joy is not based upon the fact that I have to defend my message and make sure I am right. My joy is based upon the fact that you are experiencing joy. So let's look at the devotional part of this. This is going to be good today. And listen, I know this sermon is not full of good jokes and personal stories. So I'm really asking you to kind of focus in with me. It's kind of a lot of information, but let's talk about the devotional. I want to talk about how to make joy the priority. So the first thing I'm going to do, do you remember last week I gave you a a definition called divine comfort? You guys remember that, right? And so if you don't remember it, look it up. I'm going to give you another definition today that I think is really going to be helpful for you. I'm going to define joy for you today. It's a full, supernatural satisfaction with God's presence over anything else. That's joy. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling you get when your favorite worship song is on. It's not because of preaching. I can't believe I'm saying that, but I am. It's a full, supernatural satisfaction with God's presence over anything else. And there are two ingredients for joy. There are two ingredients. The first one is learning to find our greatest pleasure in God's presence in our lives and God's presence in the lives of others. See, Jesus is more important than anything in the world or even the church can offer. Because joy is not an emotion. It's not a physical feeling. It is a satisfaction. See, that's why you can have joy right in the middle of horrible news. You can have joy right in the middle of grief. You can have joy right in the middle of suffering consequences for your sin. You can have joy in the midst of pain. 
You can have joy in the midst of defeat. You can also have joy in the midst of victory or celebration, but your joy is not because of the victory or the celebration. Joy is not an emotion. It's not a reaction. It's not a feeling. It's a supernatural satisfaction. And supernatural means something you aren't capable of, something that requires the intervention of Almighty God. Because see, life pursuing Jesus is far superior than any life spent pursuing the world. So that's God's presence in our lives. And in God's presence in the lives of others is making the joy of others the number one goal in all we do as a church. That's crucial. Anything else that we do as a church, if it steals joy from someone, you know what it is? It's self-serving church. And it's slipping back into trying to find joy the way the world does, fulfilling our own desires. Think about this. Paul's desire was to visit them. And that's not a sinful desire, but Paul recognized that desire will steal their joy, and I am not going to do that. So I will trust God and write this letter. I don't know if I could have done it. Paul explains this in a verse in Philippians 1.25. It's another book, but it's the same concept. He says, I didn't lord over you for your faith and joy. In other words, your faith and joy did not come from me controlling you, being involved in every little detail, making sure you followed my agenda. I didn't lord over you for your faith and joy, but I worked with you for the joy of your faith. Isn't that poetic? The way Paul's a brilliant writer. I didn't lord over you for your faith and joy, but I worked with you for the joy of your faith. That gives the idea of working not above, but alongside or even below. See, Paul knew their joy didn't come from his actions, but the work of God. Paul says he has no interest in causing the business of church to be a burden that sucks the joy out of people. And here's what I find. I think there's a lot of areas that church business can interfere with joy. The first one is our theology. It can be corrupted. Frankly, our agendas of what we want to accomplish with a church can corrupt our theology. A lot of churches adjust their theology to get a bigger crowd. They adjust their theology and they try to contextualize the gospel in their culture. And because of that, they will kind of adulterated and diluted. That's one of the things Paul was fighting against when he wrote 2 Corinthians. Another thing that church business can do to interfere, another area that can interfere with our joy is our focus. Sometimes our churches, we can get distracted. Our plans of what we want to do as a church can distract us from the most important thing, which is the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God. You know what else can steal joy? Our standards. Our personal desires can cause us to compromise them constantly. You know what else can really suck the joy out of our life in church? Our spending. Our obsession can cause waste. And so I struggle with this, you know, because look, the, the, the business side of me, the pastor, professional, quote unquote, pastor, business side of me, Wants, you know, grace life to be, you know, big church, plenty of money. But I struggle with that constantly. I have to check myself all the time. Why do I want that? I mean, what happens if I have a big church, but I'm stealing people's joy? 
I, I know some churches that spend like a quarter million dollars a year just on their worship budget. I mean, it can produce emotion. Megan says, yeah, what's wrong with that? What's a quarter million dollars a year, worship budget? I mean, it can produce a reaction. It can generate a crowd. But is that really joy? I mean, is that really supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God? You know what else? Our love for one another. Our own personal goals can cause us to forget and overlook each other and hurt one another. And the common theme in all these is that we, as people, part of grace life or part of the body of Christ, become self-focused on what we want, even when those things seem to be good. If our church business is impeding joy, then it's time we rethink church. We can't let church business get in our way and rob people of the ability to enjoy God's presence. I mean, we get preoccupied as the modern American church with producing a feeling, a reaction, a crowd, or manipulating people to make a certain decision. I remember when I was a youth pastor, we used to go to these, these camps, and every morning they would get up and give a rehash. Last night we had 14 salvations and 23 rededications to give our total week of decisions of 210 decisions for the week. And everything was designed around getting people to make a decision. I think that can rob people of joy. Look, I'm not talking about confronting sin. I mean, that's crucial. So I'm not saying that we avoid those hard discussions with people when they need to take place, because that has to happen. That's part of being a shepherd. That's part of being a pastor. And some, well, that's going to steal my joy. Well, no, it might make you feel convicted, but you understand that the supernatural satisfaction with God's presence is a source of joy, not avoiding feelings of guilt. So it's not about avoiding confrontation about sin. I'm talking about church business that hinders us from being supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God. When we believe that our agenda, even if it seems good for our church, is more important than your joy. Again, the supernatural satisfaction with God's presence. When selfish ministry begins to creep in, it will hinder our joy and the joy of others. It hinders that supernatural satisfaction with God's presence. See, Paul's example is one we should consider and heed. If anybody had the right to go and visit Corinth, it would have been Paul. But he said, no, if I hurt you, then the people who are a source of my joy, who's going to give me the joy that I need? Church business should never impact supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God in our lives. So with that being said, just a couple of things. In addition to Scripture, right? We understand that Scripture is the foundation. So in addition to Scripture, everything we do in our church should be evaluated by a particular concept. Right? So Scripture is the first filter. What does the Bible say? How should we respond? Okay, now we've got that. Now there's some decisions. There are some subjective decisions we have to make to implement what the Scripture says, right? And sometimes those, those subjective opinions can be good. Sometimes they can be bad. I mean, it can, it can vary. But what is the ultimate thing? Will it enhance joy or hinder it? 
It doesn't mean, will it make somebody mad or make them happy? Because, you know, you can avoid a tough conversation and somebody be happy and still not being enjoying the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God. I can tell you the times I enjoy the supernatural satisfaction with God's presence the most are the times that I recognize, wow, I'm a sinner and I still need grace. It's those times when I experience grace that I feel closer to God than when I'm on a roll, whatever that means. Or my favorite one, on fire for Jesus, whatever that means. I can't stand that one. But anyway, well, that's another sermon for another day. Will it make us forget the presence of God over an experience or compromise in theology? <clears throat> Can we get so tuned into our own agenda that we forget about the people around us in our church? Or we get so laser focused on a goal that we run roughshod over people? That's my struggle because I like to get things moving and get things done and get things going. And I don't want to do this, but I've constantly had a struggle in my ministry of, oh, this is a good decision. Let's do it. And I don't bring people alongside. I don't make sure they understand why I'm passionate about it. And I just do it because I've already done the math in my head. And of course you're going to like it. And I don't want to do that to you. And I constantly have to check myself. Man, they would really like this, but I better stop. It's just like Paul saying, I really want to visit them, but I probably shouldn't. I don't want to do it to you. And I definitely don't want you to do it to me. So what's the best way to end this message today? This, this understanding of the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God. I just want to go back to Philippians 1.25. I didn't lord over you for your faith and joy, but I worked with you for the joy of your faith. So there were two goals we had today, right? Do you remember? To know what joy is and to make sure our church never robs people of it. The example of Paul is one of those driving motives behind how grace life was born. How we want to operate. And we fail sometimes. And we will fail in the future. But I promise you, we don't want to. We don't want to be a church where our church business robs people of the supernatural satisfaction of God's presence. We want church business to not be as important as the joy of people in our church. We will always try to follow Paul's example and put the benefit of the people in front of the benefit of the organization. There might be decisions sometimes that might hurt our organization, our man-made organization, so that we can make sure that we don't rob people of the supernatural satisfaction with God's presence. I don't know what those examples will be. I mean, they happen all the time. But here's what I know. Joy is not a reaction. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God. And we don't want to get in the way of God doing his thing. Dad, we're just so thankful that... I'm glad I don't have to somehow manufacture joy in my heart. I'm glad I don't have to figure out a way to feel joyful. Sometimes I don't want to feel joyful. I mean, look at these people. But in all seriousness, God, we're just so thankful that joy is based upon your supernatural intervention. Because we would never be satisfied with your presence without the Holy Spirit and without your word 
intervening in our heart and life and enlightening us and quickening us and making us, making us alive in Christ. And then God as a church, please give us wisdom to know when our agenda is working against your agenda. Even if our agenda is a good one, help us to be submissive to work with people for their joy and faith, not for them.